Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Varieties of Exile by Mavis Gallant, which appeared in The New Yorker in January of 1976. I was 19 and for the third time in a year engaged to be married. And what I craved at this point was not love or romance or a life added to mine, but conversation, which was harder to find. The story was chosen by Margaret Atwood, who's the author of more than 40 books of poetry and fiction, including the novels The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments, and the story collection Old Babes in the Wood, which was published earlier this year. This is the first episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast to be recorded in front of a live audience at the Hot Talks Podcast Festival in Toronto on October 21st, 2023. Thank you, Margaret, for doing this. Um, you are a longtime admirer of Mavis Gallant's work and of her herself. And we actually, 10 years ago, uh, taped a podcast of a different story by Mavis Gallant. Um, how would you sum up what she did in fiction? Mavis. Oh, well, first of all, she was a tough old bird, and uh, <laughs> she was very fond of, of Graham. Um, he actually interviewed her quite a long time ago. He did it for CBC Radio, and I think they got on like a house on fire, uh, because although they weren't quite the same generation, they were they were close. They They both had pretty... Uh, strong connections with World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they had a lot in common and a lot to talk about. And, um, and they enjoyed is... a good drink <laughs> or two. <laughs> Just drink to clarify, this is Graham yeah. Gibson, your your husband. Were you, were you together at the time? Uh, I was not with him on okay. the jaunt to interview Mavis. Uh, he went over to Paris to, to do that, but I, I met her later. Mm-hmm. I think she was a bit more dubious about me than she was about him. Um, he said one of the most wonderful things that happened on that trip was he was a bit worried about about Paris traffic, which can be quite rapid. Mm-hmm. And and Mavis took a hold of him and helped him across the street, <laughs> <laughs> which I think pleased her quite a bit. So we we saw her every time we were there after mm-hmm. after that. What were those meetings like in general? Pretty hilarious because because she told stories about her life. Um, and on one occasion, she was kind enough to introduce me at a reading I was giving at Shakespeare and Company. It was supposed to be with another writer who, who will remain nameless. Uh, <laughs> that person was supposed to be reading first and he didn't turn up and didn't turn up and didn't turn up and finally we went ahead. Okay, and he walked in halfway through and said that he had been delayed because there had been a, a marathon in Paris, which had held him up. And Mavis said, such a bad excuse. <laughs> <laughs> such a bad excuse. That marathon was in the morning. <laughs> he simply wanted to read second. <laughs> yeah, That's right. Yeah. You got it. 
Um, last time we talked about her, you said that the first story of hers you had read was Orphan's Progress, in which a young girl is sent to a French-Canadian convent school where she has to wear a rubber apron while taking a bath so she doesn't get startled by the sight of her own body. Yes, this is um, a five-year-old. When you first read that story and you thought, oh, this is an interesting writer, what was it about it that made you feel that way? I thought it was quite a shocking story. And then I thought at first that the person had made it up. But then I realized that this person was writing from personal experience, so that was immediately interesting. And it was indeed Mavis's story. She had a, a quite an odd mother who would send her off to a convent school at, at the age of four because she felt that this particular convent had a preferable French accent. I mean, four is a little bit too young to be sent away to boarding school, don't you think? I do. Uh, yeah, so she had a problematic relationship with her mother, a very mm -hmm. warm one with her father, but he died young, Gadtan TB. And some of her stories are about that. So she was a person who was thrown on her own pretty early in life, which was one reason she was such a tough old bird. Uh, she was very used to making her own way, which she had done to considerable effect. Yeah. And I think we'll see a little bit of that represented in this story, Varieties of Exile. Why did you pick this one to read? First of all, it felt very timely to me. We now seem to be in another period of turmoil. We seem to be in another period after Pax Americana, which lasted from the end of the war until, I would say, 9-11. That seems to be over. And every time a dominant power loses some of its grip, there's turmoil and chaos. And uh, we are seeing, really, the return of that. And, and it feels to me like the 30s. Not that I was alive then, but but almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and the story is set in, in 1942. Do you think there's anything else that the audience should know about it before they hear it? Well, it has another very timely theme, which is, and I remember this myself from just after the war, all kinds of immigrants were were coming to North America, and they were coming even during the war. So I lived in a neighborhood in which there were people from Poland who had escaped, both the Russians and the Germans, people from Czechoslovakia, people from Belgium. Uh, you know, it was a very mixed area at that time. Um, and it's, it's feeling like that again, except that people are from different parts of the world. Yeah. So for that reason, it, it speaks anew to us where it might have felt really quite in the past if you were reading it in, say, 1980. Right, right, or 1976 when, when it was published. Yeah, yeah, it would have seemed rather long ago. Yeah. So I realized that I went to, to high school. I started high school in 1952. 1952. <laughs> <laughs> 1952, and it, it was just six years after the end of the war. But it felt like ancient times. It felt really, really long ago. And that is the odd thing about events that you live through. At first, they seem to be very far away just after you've gone through them. And then they, they come mm -hmm. closer. 
later on, she says ominously. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here is Margaret Atwood reading Varieties of Exile by Mavis Gallant. Varieties of Exile. In the third summer of the war, I began to meet refugees. There were large numbers of them in Montreal, to me a source of infinite wonder. I could not get enough of them. They came straight out of the twilight socialist literary landscape of my reading and my desires. I saw them as prophets of a promised social order that was to consist of justice, equality, art, personal relations, courage, generosity. Each of them, Belgian, French, Catholic, German, Socialist, German, Jewish, German, Czech, was a book I tried to read from start to finish. My dictionaries were films, poems, novels, Lenin, Freud. That the refugees tended to hate one another seemed no more than a deplorable accident. Nationalist pig-headedness, that chronic, wasting, and apparently incurable disease, was known to me only on Canadian terms, and I did not always recognize its symptoms. Anything I could not decipher, I turned into fiction, which was my way of untangling knots. At the office where I worked, I now spent my lunch hour writing stories about people in exile. I tried to see Montreal as an Austrian might see it and to feel whatever he felt. I was entirely at home with foreigners, which is not surprising. The home was all in my head. They were the only people I had met until now who believed, as I did, that our victory would prove to be a tidal wave nothing could stop. What I did not know was how many of them hoped and expected their neighbors to be washed away too. I was 19 and for the third time in a year engaged to be married. (laughs) And what I craved at this point was not love or romance or a life added to mine, but conversation, which was harder to find. I knew by now that a man in love does not necessarily have anything interesting to say. (laughs) If he has, he keeps it for other men. (laughs) Men in Canada did not talk much to women and hardly at all to young ones. The impetus of love, or of infatuation rather, brought on a kind of conversation I saw no reason to pursue. (laughs) A remark such as, I can't live without you, made the speaker sound not only half-witted to me, but almost truly, literally insane. (laughs) There's a girl in a Stefan Zweig novel who says to her lover, is that all? (laughs) I had pondered this carefully many years before, for I supposed it had something unexpected to do with sex. Now I gave it another meaning, which was that where women were concerned, men were satisfied with next to nothing. If every woman was a situation, she was somehow always the same situation, and what was expected from the woman, the situation, was so limited it was insulting. I had a large opinion of what I could do and provide, yet it came down to, is that all? Is that all you expect? Being promised to one person after another was turning into a perpetual state of hesitation and refusal. I was not used to hesitating over anything, and so I supposed I must be wrong. 
The men in my office had warned me of the dangers of turning into a married woman. If this caution affected me, it was only because it coincided with a misgiving of my own. My private name for married women was Red Queens. They looked to me like the Red Queen and through the looking glass, chasing after other people and minding their business for them. To get out of the heat that summer, I had taken a room outside Montreal in an area called simply the Lakeshore. In those days, the Lakeshore was a string of verdant towns with next to no traffic. Dandelions grew in the pavement cracks. The streets were thickly shaded. A fragrance I have never forgotten of mown grass and leaf smoke drifted from yard to yard. As I walked to my commuter's train early in the morning, I saw kids still in their pajamas digging holes in the lawns and red queen wives wearing housecoats. They stuck their heads out of screen doors and yelled instructions to husbands, to children, to dogs, to postmen, to a neighbor's child. How could I be sure I wouldn't sound that way, so shrill, so discontented? As for a family, the promise of children all stamped with the same face, cast in the same genetic mold, seemed a cruel waste of possibilities. I would never have voiced this to anyone, for it would have been thought unnatural, even monstrous. When I was very young, under seven, my plan for the future had been to live in every country of the world and have a child in each. <laughs> I had confided it. With adult adroitness, my listener led me on. How many children? Oh, one to a country. And what would you do with them? Travel in trains. How would they go to school? I hate schools. <laughs> How will they learn to read and write then? They'll know already. <laughs> what would you live on? It will all be free. That's not very sensible, is it? Why not? As a result of this idyll of my divulgence of it, I was kept under watch for a time and my pocket money taken away, lest I save it up and sail to a tropical island where, because of the Swiss family Robinson, I proposed to begin long before the onset of puberty. I think no one realized I had not even a nebulous idea of how children sprang to life. I merely knew two persons were required for a ritual I believed had to continue for nine months, in which I imagined in the nature of a long card game with mysterious <laughs> rules. Uh, when I was finally told, accurately as it turned out, I was offended at being asked to believe something so unreasonable, which could not be true because I had never come across it in books. This trust in the printed word seems all the more remarkable when I remember that I thought children's books were written by other children. Probably at 19, I was still dim about relevant dates, plain facts, brass tacks, consistent reasoning. Perhaps I was still hoping for magic card games to short-circuit every sort of common sense. Common sense is only an admission we don't know much. I know that I wanted to marry this third man, but that I didn't want to be anybody's red queen. The commuters on the Montreal train never spoke much to each other. The mystifying and meaningless, hot enough for you, was about the extent of it. 
If I noticed one man more than the anonymous others, it was only because he looked so hopelessly English, so unable or unwilling to concede to anything, even the climate. Once, walking a few steps behind him, I saw him turn into the drive of a stone house, one of the few old French-Canadian houses in that particular town. The choice of houses seemed to me peculiarly English, too, though not, of course, what French-Canadians call English, for that includes plain Canadians, Irish, Swedes, anything you like not natively French. I looked again at the house and at the straight back going along the drive. His wife was on her knees holding a pair of edging shears. He stopped to greet her. She glanced up and said something in a carrying British voice, so wild and miserable, so resentful, so intensely disagreeable that it could not have been the tag end of a morning quarrel. No, it was the thunderclap of some new engagement. After a second, he went on up the walk, and in another, I was out of earshot. I was persuaded that he had seen me. I don't know why. I also thought it must have been humiliating for him to have had a witness. Which of us spoke first? It could not have been him, and it most certainly could not have been me. There must have been a collision, for there we are, speaking on a station platform. It is early morning, already hot. I see once again, without surprise, that he is not dressed for the climate. He said he had often wondered what I was reading. I said I was reading All the Russians. He said I really ought to read Arthur Whaley. I had never heard of Arthur Whaley. Similar signaling takes place between galaxies rushing apart in the outer heavens. He said he would bring me a book by Arthur Whaley the next day. Please don't. <laughs> I'm careless with books. Look at the shape this one's in. It was the truth. All the Russians were being published in a uniform edition with flag-red covers on grayish paper with microscopic print. The words were jammed together. You could not have put a pin in between the lines. It was one of those cheap editions I think we were supposed to be sending the troops in order to cheer them up. Left in the grass beside a tennis court, the possessed now curved like a shell. A white streak ran down the middle of the shell. The rest of the cover had turned pink. That was nothing, he said. All I needed to do was dampen the cover with a sponge and put a weight on the book. The wallet of Kai Lung had been to Ceylon with him and had survived. Whatever bait Ceylon may have been caught nothing. Army? Civil service? I did not take it up. Anyway, I thought I could guess. You'd better not bring a book for nothing. I don't always take this train. He had probably noticed me every morning. The mixture of reserve and obstinacy that next crossed his face I see still. He smiled, oh, not too much. I'd have turned my back on a grin. He said, I forgot to, Frank Cairns, Muir, Linnet Muir, reluctantly. The thing is, I knew all about him. He was, one, married, and two, too old. But there was also three. Frank Cairns was stamped, labeled, ticketed by his tie, club, regiment, school, by his voice, manner, haircut, suit, by the impression he gave of being stranded in a jungle, waiting for a rescue party, 
from England, of course. He belonged to a species of British immigrant known as remittance men. Their obsolescence began on 3 September 1939, and by 8 May 1945, they were extinct. I knew about them from having had one in the family. Frank Cairns worked in a brokerage house, he told me later, but he probably did not need a job, at least not for a living. It must have been a way of ordering time, a flight from idleness, perhaps a means of getting out of the house. The institution of the remittance man was British, its genesis a chemical structure of family pride, class insanity, and imperial holdings that seemed impervious to fission, but in the end turned out to be more fragile than anyone thought. Like all superfluous and marginal persons, remittance men were characters in a plot. The plot began with a fixed scene and a mutable first chapter, which described a powerful father's taking umbrage at his son's misconduct and ordering him out of the country. The pound was then one to five dollars, and there were vast British territories everywhere you looked. Hordes of young men who had somehow offended their parents were shipped out, golden deportees, to Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, Singapore. They were reluctant pioneers, totally lacking any sense of adventure or desire to see that particular world. An income, the remittance, was provided on a standing banker's order with one string attached, keep out of England. For the second chapter, the plot allowed a choice of six crimes as reason for banishment. Conflict over the choice of a profession, the son wants to be a tap dancer. Gambling in debts, he has been barred for Monte Carlo. Dud checks, I won't press a charge, sir, but see that the young rascal is kept out of harm's way. Marriage with a girl from the wrong walk of life. Young man, you have made your bed. Fathering an illegitimate child and broken your mother's heart. Homosexuality, if discovered, too grave for even a lecture. It was a criminal offense. This is the plot of the romance. This is what everyone repeated and what the remittance man believed of himself. Obviously, it is a load of codswallop. A man legally of age could marry the tattooed woman in a circus, be arrested for check bouncing, or for soliciting boys in Green Park, be obliged to recognize his byblow and even to wed its mother, become a ponce or a professional wrestler, and still remain where he was born. All he needed to do was eschew the remittance and tell his papa to go to hell. Even at 19, the plot was a story I wouldn't buy. The truth came down to something just as dramatic, but boring to tell. A classic struggle for dominance with two protagonists, strong father, pliant son. It was also a male battle. No son was ever sent into exile by his mother, and no one has ever heard of a remittance woman. Yet daughters got into scrapes nearly as often as their brothers. Having no idea what money was, they ran up debts easily. Sometimes, out of ignorance of another sort, they dared to dispose of their own virginity, thus wrecking their value on the marriage market and becoming family charges for life. 
accoucheurs had to be bribed to perform abortions or else the daughters were dispatched to Austria and Switzerland to have babies they would never hear of again. The daughter's disgrace was long, expensive, and hard to conceal, yet no one dreamed of sending her thousands of miles away and forever. On the contrary, she became her father's unpaid servant, social secretary, dog walker, companion, sick nurse. Holding on to a daughter, dismissing a son, were relatively easy. It depended on having tamely delinquent children or a thunderous personality no child would dare to challenge and on the weapon of money, bait or weapon as you like. Banished young as a rule, the remittance man, the RM in my private vocabulary, drifted for the rest of his life, never quite sounding or looking like anyone around him, seldom raising a family or pursuing an occupation, so much for the choice of profession legend. Remote, dreamy, bored, those who never married often became low-key drunks. The remittance was usually ample without being handsome, but enough to keep one from doing a hand's turn. In any case, few remittance men were fit to do much of anything, being well-schooled but half-educated in that specifically English way, as well as markedly unaggressive and totally uncompetitive, which would have meant early death in the new world for anyone without an income. They were like children waiting for the school vacation so that they could go home, except that at home, nobody wanted them. The nursery had been turned into a billiards room and nanny dismissed. They were parted from mothers they rarely mentioned, whom in some way they blended with a Rupert Brooke memory of England, of the mother country, of the old country, as everyone at home grew old. Often as not the payoff, the keep away blackmail funds came out of the mother's marriage settlement. Out of the capital, her own father had agreed to settle upon her unborn children during the wear and tear of Edwardian engagement negotiations. The son disgraced would never see more than a fixed income from this. He was cut off from a share of inheritance by his contract of exile. There were cases where the remittances ended abruptly with the mother's death, but that was considered a bad arrangement. Usually the allowance continued for the exile's lifetime and stopped when he died. No provision was made for his dependents if he had them, and because of his own subject attitude to money, he was unlikely to have made any himself. The income reverted to his sisters and brothers to an estate to a cat and dog hospital, whatever his father had decreed on some black, angry day long before. Whatever these sons had done, their punishment was surely a cruel and singular one invented for naughty children by a cosmic headmaster taking over for God. They were obliged to live over and over until they died, the first separation from home and the incomparable trauma of rejection. Yes, they were like children, perpetually on their way to a harsh school. They were eight years of age and sent home from India to childhoods of secret grieving among strangers. And this wound, this amputation, they would mercilessly inflict on their own children when the time came, on sons always, on daughters sometimes, persuaded that early heartbreak was right because it was British 
hampered only by the financial limit set for banishment. It costs money to get rid of your young. And how they admired their fathers, those helpless sons. They spoke of them with so much admiration, with such a depth of awe. Only in memory can such voices still exist. The calm English voice on a summer night, a Canadian night so alien to the speaker, insisting with sudden firmness, with a pause between words, my father once said to me, and here would follow something utterly trivial, some advice about choosing a motor car or training a dog. To the Canadian grandchildren, the unknown grandfather was seven feet tall with a beard like George V, while the grandmother came through weepy and prissy and not very interesting. It was the father's father, never met, never heard, who made heaven and earth and Eve and Adam. The father in Canada seemed no more than an apostle transmitting a paternal message from the father in England, the father of us all. It was, however, rare for a remittance man to marry, rarer still to have any children. How could he become a father when he had never stopped being a son? If the scattered Freemasonry of offspring the remittance man left behind all adult to elderly now, had anything in common, it must have been their degree of incompetence. They were raised to behave well in situations that might never occur, trained to become genteel poor on continents where even the concept of genteel poverty has never existed. They were brought up with plenty of books and music and private lessons and nursed sometimes in a household where certain small luxuries were deemed essential a way of life that, in North America at least, was supposed to be built on a sunken concrete base of money. Otherwise, you were British con men, a breed of gypsy, and a bad example. Now, your remittance man was apt to find this assumption quite funny. The one place he would never take seriously was the place he was in. The identification of prominent local families with the name of a product, a commodity, would be his running joke. The all seeds are sugar, the bilges are coal, the kumquats are cough medicine, the doldrums are coffins, the earwigs are saucepans, the fustians are timber, the grindstones are beer. But as young, once they came up against it, were bound to observe that their concrete base was the dandelion fluff of a banker's order, their commodity nothing but life in England before 1914, which was not negotiable. Also, the constant nagging, what does your father really do, could announce to persecution. Mr. Bainwood wants to know what you do. Damned inquisitive of him. Well, what do you do? Silence, signs of annoyance, laughter sometimes, or something silly. What do you do when you aren't asking questions? No remittance man child that I know of ever attended a university, though care was taken over the choice of schools. There they would be at 18 and 19, the boys wearing raincoats in the coldest weather, the girls with their hair ribbons and hand knits and their innocently irritating English voices, well-read, musical, versed in history, probably because they had been taught that the past is better than now, and somewhere else better than here. 
They must have been the only English-Canadian children to speak French casually as a matter of course. Untidy, unpunctual, imperially tactless, they drifted into work that had to be interesting, creative, never demeaning, and where, unless they'd had the advantage of a rough time and enough nounce to draw a line against the past, they seldom lasted. There was one in every public relations firm, one to a radio station, two to a publisher, forgetting appointments, losing contracts, jamming typewriters, sabotaging telephones, apologizing in accents it would have taken elocution lessons to change, so strong had been paternal pressure against the hard Canadian R, not to mention other vocables. A-T-E is at, darling, not eight. I can't say at, only farmers say it. Perhaps here, but you won't always be here. Of course the children were guilt-drenched, wondering which of the six traditional crimes they ought to pin on their father, what his secret was, what his past included, why he had been made an outcast. The answer was quite often, nothing, no reason. But it meant too much to be unraveled and knit up. The saddest were those unwise enough to look into the families who had caused so much inherited woe, for the family was often as not smaller potatoes than the children had thought, and their father's romantic crime had been just the inability to sit for an examination, to stay at a university, to handle an allowance, to gain a toehold in any profession, or even to decide what he wanted to do, an ineptitude so maddening to live with that the father preferred to shell out forever rather than watch his heir fall apart before his eyes. The male line, then, was a ghost story. A mother's vitality would be needed to create ectoplasm to make the ghost offspring visible. Unfortunately, the exiles were apt to marry absent-minded women whose skirts are covered with dog hairs. The drooping, bewildered British-Canadian mouse who counts on tea leaves to tell her what will happen when Edward goes. None of us is ever saved entirely, but even an erratic and alarming maternal vitality could turn out to be better than none. Frank Cairns was childless, which I thought was wise of him. He had been to Ceylon, gone back to England with a stiff case of homesickness disguised as malaria, married and been shipped smartly out again, this time to Montreal. He was a neat, I think rather a small man with a straight part in his hair and a quick, brisk walk. He noticed I was engaged. I did not reply. I told him I had been in New York, had come back about a year ago, and missed different things. He seemed to approve. You can't make a move here, he said more than once. I was not sure what he meant. If he had been only the person I've described, I'd have started taking an earlier train to be rid of him. But Frank Cairns was something new, unique of his kind, and almost as good as a refugee, for he was a socialist. At least, he said he was. He said he had never voted anywhere, but that if he ever in the future happened to be in England when there was an election, he would certainly vote Labour. His socialism did not fit anything else about him and seemed to depend for its life on the memory of talks he'd once had with a friend whom he described as brilliant, philosophical, far-seeing, and just. 
I thought, like Christ, but did not know Frank Cairns well enough to say so. The non-believer I had become was sometimes dogged by the child whose nightly request had been, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child, and I sometimes got into ferocious arguments with her as well as with other people. I was too curious about Frank Cairns to wish to quarrel over religion, at any rate not at the beginning. He talked about his friend without seeming able to share him. He never mentioned his name. I had to fill in the blank part of this conversation without help. I made the friend a high-ranking civil servant in Ceylon, older than anyone, which might have meant 42, an intellectual revolutionary who could work the future out on paper like arithmetic. Wherever his opinions came from, Frank Cairns was the first person ever to talk to me about the English poor. They seemed to be a race, different in kind from other English. He showed me old copies of picture posts he must have saved up from the Depression. In our hot summer train, where everyone was starched and ironed and washed and fed, we considered slum doorways and the faces of women at the breaking point. They looked like Lenin's remnants of nations, except that there were too many of them for a remnant. I thought of my mother and her long preoccupation with the fate of the Scottsboro boys. My mother had read and mooned and fretted about the Scottsboro case while I tried to turn her attention to something urgent, such as that my school uniform was now torn in three places. It is quite possible that my mother had seldom seen a black person except on railway trains. If I say black, it is only because it is expected. It was a rude and offensive term in my childhood, and I would not have been allowed to use it. Black was the sort of thing South Africans said. Had Frank Cairns actually seen those picture post faces, I wondered? His home, his England, was every other remittance man's, the one I called Christopher Robin Land and had sworn to keep away from. He hated Churchill, I remember, but I was used to hearing that. No man who remembered the Dardanelles really trusted him. Younger men, I'm speaking of the handful I knew who had any opinion at all, were not usually irritated by his rhetoric until they got into uniform. Once, in a book I lent him, he found a scrap of paper on which I had written the title of a story I was writing, The Socialist R.M., and some scrawls in, luckily, a private shorthand of mine, a perilous moment. Remittance man was a term of abuse all over the Commonwealth and Empire. What is it, he asked? Resident magistrate? It might be Royal Marine. Royal Mail. I honestly don't remember. I can't read my own writing sometimes. This last sentence was true. His socialism was unlike a Czech's or a German's, though he believed that one should fight hard for social change. There was a hopelessness about it, an almost moral belief that improving their material circumstances would get the downtrodden nowhere. At the same time, he thought the poor were happy, that they had some strange secret of happiness, the way people often think all Italians are happy because they have large families. I wondered if he really believed that a man with no prospects and no teeth in his head was spiritually better off than Frank Cairns, and why, in that case, Frank Cairns did not let him alone with his underfed children and his native good nature. 
This was a British left-wing paradox I was often to encounter later on. What it seemed to amount to was leaving people more or less as they were, though he did speak about basic principles and the spread of education. It sounded dull. I was Russian-minded. I read Russian books, listened to Russian music. After Russia came Germany and Central Europe, that was where the real mystery and political excitement lay. His webs and his Fabians were plodding and gray. I saw the men with thick mustaches, wearing heavy boots, sharing lumpy meals with moral women. In the books he brought me, I continued to find his absent friend. He produced Houseman and Hardy. I could not read either. Siegfried Sassoon and Edmund Blunden, H.G. Wells and Bernard Shaw. The friend was probably a Scot. Frank Cairns admired them. The Scots of Canada, to me, stood for all that was narrow, grasping at a standstill. How I distrusted those granite bankers who thought it was sinful to smoke. I was wrong, he told me, that true Scots were full of poetry and political passion. I said, are you sure? And turned his friend into a native of Aberdeen and a graduate from Edinburgh. I also began a new notebook, Scottish Labour Party, Keir Hardy, others. This was better than the Webbs, but still not so good as Rosa Luxemburg. It was Frank Cairns who said to me, life has no point, without emphasis, in response to some ignorant assumption of mine. This was his true voice. I recall the sidelong glance, the lizard's eye that some men develop as they grow old or when they have too much to hide. I was no good with ages. I cannot place him even today, early 30s probably. What else did he tell me? That Scotch was the proper term and Scots an example of a genteelism overtaking the original. That unless the English surmounted their class obsessions with speech and accent, Britain would not survive in the world after the war. His remedy, or his friends, was having everyone go to the same schools. He surprised me even more by saying, I would never live in England, not as it is now. Where then? Nowhere. I don't know. What about Russia? They all go to the same schools. Good Lord, said Frank Cairns. <laughs> he was inhabited by a familiar who spoke through him, provided him with jolting outbursts, but not a whole thought. Perhaps that silent coming and going was the way people stayed in each other's lives when they were apart. What Frank Cairns was to me was a curio cabinet. I took everything out of the cabinet, piece by piece, examined the objects, set them down. Such situations, riddled with ambiguity, I would blunder about with for a long time until I learned to be careful. The husband of the woman from whom I rented my summer room, played golf every weekend. On one of those August nights when no one can sleep and the sky is nearly bright enough to read by, I took to the backyard and found him trying to cool off with a glass of beer. He remembered he had offered to give me golf lessons. I did not wish to learn, but did not say so. His wife spoke up from a deck chair. You've never offered to teach me, I notice. She then compounded the error by telling me everyone was talking about me and the married man on the train. The next day, I took 
the Kathy Colwitz prints down from the walls of my room and moved back to Montreal without an explanation. Frank Cairns and I met once more that summer to return some books. That was all. When he called me at my office late in November, I said, Who? He came into the coffee shop at Windsor Station, where I was waiting. He was in uniform. I had not noticed he was good-looking before. It was not something I noticed in men. He was a first lieutenant. I disapproved. Couldn't they make you a private? <laughs> too old, he said. As it is, I am too old for my rank. I thought he just meant he might be promoted faster because of that. You don't look old. I at once regretted this personal remark, the first he had heard from me. Indeed, he had shed most of his adult life. He must have seemed as young as this when he started out to Salon. The uniform was his visa to England. No one could shut him away now. His face was radiant, open. He was halfway there. This glimpse of a purpose astonished me. Why should a uniform make the change he'd been able to make alone? He was not the first soldier I saw transfigured, but he was the first to affect me. He kept smiling and staring at me. I hoped he was not going to make a personal remark in exchange for mine. He said, That tam makes you look, I don't know, Canadian. <laughs> I've always thought of you as English. I still think England is where you might be happy. I'm happy here. You said you'd never live there. It would be a good place for you, he said. Well, well, we shall see. He would say nothing. My evolution was like freaky weather then. A few months, a few weeks even, were the equivalent of long second thoughts later on. I was in a completely other climate. I no longer missed New York and different things. I'd become patriotic. Canadian patriotism is always anti-American in part and feeds upon anecdotes. American tourists were beginning to arrive in Montreal looking for anything expensive or hard to find in the United States when they could not buy rationed food such as meat and butter or unrationed things such as nylon stockings because they did not exist. They complained of ingratitude. This was because Canada was thought to be a recipient of American charity and on the other end of Lend-Lease. Canadians were and are enormously touchy. Great umbrage had been taken over a story that was going around in the States about Americans who had been soaked for black market butter in Montreal. When they finally got back across the border, they opened the package and found the butter stamped gift of the American people. <laughs> this fable persisted throughout the war and turned up in print. An American friend saw it in, I think, Westbrook Pegler's column and wrote asking me if it was true. I composed a letter I meant to send to the New York Times demolishing the butter story. I kept rewriting and reshaping it, trying to achieve a balance between crippling irony and a calm review of events. I never posted it finally because my grandmother appeared to me in a dream and said that only fools wrote to newspapers. <laughs> Our coffee was tepid, the saucers slopped. He complained, and the waitress asked if we knew there was a war on. 
Christ, what a bloody, awful country this is, he said. I wanted to say, then why are you with a Canadian regiment? I provided my own answer. They pay more than the Brits. We were actually quarreling in my head, and on such a mean level, I began to tear up a paper napkin and to cry. I have missed you, he remarked, but quite happily. You could tell the need for missing was over. I had scarcely thought of him at all. I kept taking more and more napkins out of the container on the table and blotting my face and tearing the paper up. He must be the only man I ever cried about in a public place. I hardly knew him. He was not embarrassed, as a Canadian would have been, but looked all the happier. <laughs> the glances we got from other tables were full of understanding. Everything gave the wrong impression. His uniform, my engagement ring, my tears. I told him I was going to be married. Nonsense, he said. I'm serious. You seem awfully young. I'll soon be 20. A slip. I had told him I was older. It amazed me to remember how young I had been only the summer before. But I won't actually be a married woman, I said, because I hate everything about them. Another thing I won't be, and that's the sensitive housewife, the one who listens to Brahms while she does the ironing and reads all the new books still in their jackets. No, don't be a sensitive housewife, he said. He gave me the wallop, wallet of Kai Lung and Kai Lung's golden hours, which had been in Ceylon with him and had survived. Did we write to each other? That's what I can't remember. I was careless then. I kept moving on. Also, I really did that time get married. My husband was posted three days afterward to an American base in the Aleutian Islands. I have forgotten why. Eight months later, he returned for a brief embarkation leave and then went overseas. I had dreaded coming into my office after my wedding for fear the men I worked with would tease me. But the mixture of war and separation recalled old stories of their own experiences in the First World War. Also, I had been transformed into someone with a French surname, which gave them pause. Does he uh, speak any French? Not a word. He's from the West. Ah. But he ought to. His father is French. Oh. I had disappeared for no more than four days, but I was Mrs. Something now, not young Linnet. They spoke about me as she and not Linnet or the kid. I wondered what they saw when they looked at me. In every head bent over a desk or a drawing board, there was an opinion about women. Expressed, it sounded either prurient or coarse, but I still cannot believe that is all there was to it. I know I shocked them profoundly once by saying that a wartime ditty popular with the troops rocked me to sleep, Sergeant Major, tucked me in my little bed, was innocently homosexual that I could have such a turn of thought, that I could use such an expression, that I even knew it existed, seemed scandalous to them. You read too damned much, I was told. Oddly enough, they had never minded my hearing any of the several versions of the song, some of which were unspeakable. All they objected to was my unfeminine remark. When I married, they gave me a suitcase. And when I left for good, they bought me a victory bond. I had scrupulously noted every detail of the office and the building it was in, yet only a few months later, 
I would walk by it without remembering I had ever been inside, and it occurs to me only now that I never saw any of them again. I was still a minor, but emancipated by marriage. I did not need to ask parental consent for anything or worry about being brought down on the wing. I realized how anxious I had been once the need for that particular anxiety was over. A friend in New York, married to a psychiatrist, had sent me a letter saying I had her permission to marry. <laughs> she did not describe herself as a relative or state anything untrue. She just addressed herself to whom it may concern and said that as far as she was concerned, I could get married and signed. She did not tell her husband in case he tried to put things right out of principle, and I mentioned to no one that the letter was legal teradiddle and carried about as much weight as a library card. I mentioned this to show what essential paperwork sometimes amounts to. My husband, age 24, had become my legal guardian under Quebec's preposterous Napoleonic law, but he never knew that. When he went overseas, he asked me not to join any political party, which I hadn't thought of doing, and not to enlist in the Army or the Air Force. The second he vanished, I tried to join the Wrens, which had not been on the list, only because it slipped his mind. Joining one of the services had never been among my plans and projects. It was he who accidentally put the idea into my head. I now decided I would turn up overseas, having made it there on my own, but I got no further than the enlistment requirements, which included of the white race only. This barrier turned out to be true of nearly all the navies of the Commonwealth countries. I supposed everyone must have wanted it that way, for I never heard it questioned. I was only beginning to hear the first rumblings of hypocrisy on our side, the right side. The wrong side seemed to be guilty of every sin humanly possible except simulation of virtue. I put the blame for the racial barrier on Churchill, who certainly knew and had known since the First World War. I believed that Roosevelt, Stalin, Chiang Kai-shek, and de Gaulle did not know, and that should it ever come to their attention, they would be as shocked as I was. <laughs> Instead of enlisting, I passed the St. John's Ambulance First Aid Certificate, which made me a useful person in case of total war. The killed, wounded, missing columns of the afternoon paper were now my daily reading. It became a habit so steadfast that I would automatically look for victims even after the war ended. A summer of the Scottish Labour Party, Keir Hardy and others fell behind, as well as a younger, discarded Linnet. I lighted ferocious autos de fe. Nothing could live except present time. In the ever-new present, I read one day that Major Francis Cairns had died of wounds in Italy. Who remembers now the shock of the known name? It was like a flat white light. One felt apart from everyone, isolated. The field of vision drew in. Then before one could lose consciousness, vision expanded, light and shadow moved, voices pierced through. One's heart, which had stopped, beat hard enough to make a room shudder. All this would occupy about a second. The next second was inhabited by disbelief. I saw him in uniform, so happy, halfway there, and myself making a spectacle of us, 
tearing a paper napkin. I was happy for him that he would never need to return to the commuting train and the loneliness and be forced to relive his own past. I wanted to write a casual letter saying so. One's impulse was, was always to write to the dead. Nobody knew I knew him, and in Canada it was not done to speak of the missing. I forgot him. He went under. I was doing a new sort of work and sharing a house with another girl whose husband was also overseas. Montreal had become a completely other city. I was no longer attracted to refugees. They were going through a process called integrating. Some changed their names. Others applied for citizenship. A refugee eating cornflakes was of no further interest. The house I now lived in contained a fireplace in which I burned all my stories about Czech and German anti-fascists. In the picnic hamper I used for storing journals and notebooks, I found a manila envelope marked Lakeshore. It contained several versions of the Socialist RM and a few other things that sounded as if they were translated from the Russian by Constance Garnett. I also found a brief novel I had no memory of having written about a Scot from Aberdeen, a left-wing civil servant in Ceylon, a man from somewhere living elsewhere, confident that another world was entirely possible since he had got it all down. It had shape, density, voice, but I destroyed it too. I never felt guilt about forgetting the dead or the living, but I minded about that one manuscript for a time. All this business of putting life through a sieve and then discarding it was another variety of exile. I knew that even then, but it seemed quite right and perfectly natural. Made it through. <laughs> That was Margaret Atwood reading Varieties of Exile by Mavis Gallant. The story appeared in The New Yorker in January of 1976 and was published in several collections, including Home Truths in 1981 and Varieties of Exile, which was released by New York Review Books in 2003. Hi, it's David Remnick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker including Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P-O-D-15 for a 15% discount. Lynette Muir appears in several of Mavis's stories. I think there are six of them, which are set mostly in Montreal in the years of, of Gallant's childhood and youth. Lynette is clearly her most autobiographical character, but Mavis was not a confessional writer. So where do you see in this story the line between fiction and nonfiction? Well, I think we'd have to ask Mavis, you know, how much of it is true. She won't answer. No. <laughs> you think not. Uh, Halloween is coming up. You know. 
She won't answer you. <laughs> no, no, she won't. She will not. She might answer uh, you. I think I think those stories are pretty autobiographical. Yeah. Uh, she's quite candid about how naive she was, even rushing off to get married at the age of 19. Uh, although people did that in those days, especially during yeah. the war. When the war was over, this man came back and they realized that, in fact, they were not supposed to be married. And they agreed that they would get a divorce. So this was in Montreal in the late 40s. And they agreed that that he would have to be the person discovered in adultery, which was the only reason you could get a divorce then. And and you could rent people. You (laughs) You could rent co respondents uh, so he rented this nice housewife who got it, went into a hotel with him, got into the bed with all her clothes on, and pulled all the covers up to her chin. And at a prearranged time, Mavis and a photographer burst into the room and <laughs> took a picture of them as evidence for the divorce. Uh, and this was a well-known arrangement. People knew that that's what you did. Uh, so then the, the divorce was... Uh, apparently going to be granted, and um, Mavis told her husband over the phone that that she was having a party to celebrate, and he said, can I come? <laughs> she, she said, no, you, you're not allowed, because that would be collusion. <laughs> right. He sounds like he might have been in some way the right man for Mavis. <laughs> well, so, uh, you can see what yeah, would have been attractive at the beginning. What she did right after that was she went off to Paris uh, with the idea that she would send out three stories, and then if none of them got accepted, that she would give it up. And and one did get accepted. I believe it was by the New Yorker. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was that made history, I guess. One of the things that interests me in this story is the fact that it begins with a plot. There's a young woman who meets a man on a train, and then we get an enormous digression. About remittance men. About remittance men. And it's funny and it's interesting and it's somewhat relevant for our understanding of Frank Cairns, but it's almost 2,000 words. I know, it's long. Um, Why Why do you think that's there? Well, the story is about exile, including hers. I think it's there because it, you know, she says she'd written about this guy and then threw it out and forgot it. But that's not true either, because her remembrance of him is in that middle section. That's um, her portrait. In a way, it's, it's part of the portrait. This is what these people were like. Then she goes on to say that he digressed from the pattern. He wasn't completely the pattern because he said he was a socialist, which was something that interested her at the time. So here we have Lynnet, who's kind of caught in a bit of a cage, pulling at the bars, because men fall in love with her. They don't want to talk to her. She thinks they're half-witted. They <laughs> save all their good conversation for other men. All she wants is a conversation. She says, I don't want love. I, I want a good conversation. Well, she got one sort of on the train. And she gets one. Yeah. Frank Cairns comes along, and he talks to her about writing. He talks to her about books. He talks to her about politics. He's a socialist. 
and yet she keeps her distance. And I feel that's not just because he's married. What do you, what do you think that's because of? I don't think she's of? attracted to him romantically at all. Uh, she makes that quite clear. But they have this brief little interlude in the when he's in uniform and seems quite happy. And, and at that point, so why is she crying? Why is she tearing yeah, the paper Yeah, why is she mat? crying? Yeah. It's a strange moment. She's having an argument with him in her head that he can't even hear. She says it's too mean, and she starts to cry. Yeah. But there's something that happens when she sees him in uniform, and this is when he stops being a remittance man, I suppose. Well, he's joined a Canadian regiment, but hates the country. So it's a contradiction. And she herself is very conflicted, uh, because on some level she shares that opinion. Well, she, she hates every country, it seems, right? There's a lot of, um, lot of negativity about Canada, about America, and especially about Britain. Yeah, she hasn't got to France yet. <laughs> but when she got there, she had quite a lot to say about that, too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> she, is very, she is very critical. Um, and, and maybe, you know, she just doesn't feel that these are homes for her that she would be accepted in. But there's a kind of a throwaway line when she starts talking about remittance men and she says, I knew them because I had one in the family. And interestingly, in this particular story, in the other Lynette Muir stories, we hear a lot about her family. In this story, the only thing we hear is that her mother's obsessed with the Scottsboro boys and not with her ripped school uniform. That's it. No mention of a father, no mention of his death, nothing. However, her own father was in some way a remittance man that's why she knows so much about them exactly yeah and that's completely unspoken in the story (laughs) so Um, i think if you put that story into a collection with the other lennett mirror stories you would have that context yeah but it's it's a surprising silence i thought in the story another thing with frank karen's is she can't really accept him as he is, right? He tells her these things and he mentions a friend sort of in passing. And instantly she decides every interesting thing Frank Karen says comes from this friend whom she knows nothing about and she gives him a whole identity and keeps shifting it. Why is that? Why does she do that? I'm not the author. <laughs> I know, but you're, you're a deep reader. Let's come sort, at it as a reader. Of, yeah. Um, what do you think? I think there's deflection. You mean she doesn't want to? <laughs> Someone's deflecting here. Yeah, uh, I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know why she does that. I think she yeah. might do that because she doesn't wish to ascribe positive qualities to him. It would probably be a little, be a little too threatening. Um, When she hears this comment from the woman in the deck chair, people are talking about you, she immediately shuts everything down. Yeah, yeah. So if she were not threatened by that, she would not have that very fast and definitive reaction to a comment like that. I'm kind of working with a theory that she actually does, to some extent, fall in love with Frank Cairns. And that's why there are so many disclaimers saying, I didn't, hadn't even noticed he was good looking. I didn't notice that kind I of thing. I forgot about and, him. You know, true. I forgot about him. He went under, and at the same time, she's weeping. Exactly. There are some unexplored and unacknowledged feelings of hers, which the author, Mavis, probably knew quite well what she was doing with that. But the young Lynette Muir doesn't know. 
So the story is told by an older Linnetmuir, looking back. The story right? is actually told by Mavis pretending to be an, <laughs> <laughs> it's an older Linnetmuir. Yeah, yeah, it's the older Linnetmuir is remembering this younger Linnetmuir whom she sort of has a bit of contempt for. Oh, I, um, I think she has sort of an indulgent and mm-hmm. amused affection. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't, I'm not sure it's contempt. She, she says, says her she, as a young naive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you think we get that slightly retrospective view of the story, why, rather than hearing it purely from nineteen-year-old Lynette? I'm not sure that she could have written nineteen-year-old Lynette. I don't think in any of the Lynette Muir stories she does. It's, it's always looking back. Why? Why couldn't she? I just think it's. I think it's a hard thing to do. I think it's very hard to write as a teenager, if you're not one, and if you are one, what you're going to turn out is probably unreadable. <laughs> <laughs> At least mine certainly was. <laughs> She wrote this story in 1976, right? so she was uh, 54. Why do you think in this period of her life, and the, the other Lynette Muir stories, I think were around the same time, and they, they were published together in the book Home Truths in 1981. Why in her 50s? She was a very prickly defensive person, yeah. as you probably gathered, and I, I think she had to work up to writing anything so close to herself. Uh, I don't think she could have done it as a 30-year-old. And I think that that time period also had to get far enough away from her so that she had some perspective about it. All the stories, except this one, and perhaps this one, are shot through with sadness about her father, who... Yeah, um, probably this one, too. Yeah. Seems there's something of her father in, in Frank Well, Karen. I think she saw him as an unrealized person. I mean, he couldn't somehow stand up to this very flamboyant mother. And then, of course, he dies young. I think mm-hmm. she felt he was an, uh, an unachieved artist of some kind. Well, he was a painter, yeah. 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 And he died without Mavis being told. Yeah, they, they concealed it from her for months. Yeah. That he was dead. And it seemed that he was also the only source of parental love. He was the only one who took her seriously, empathized with her, and spent time with her. The, the mother, I think, was not really interested in, certainly not interested in young children. And if you send your four-year-old off to a convent school, <laughs> what? So let's come... Back to the story and back to the moment where Lynette reads about the death of Francis Cairns. Yes. And that moment she where is. she describes, you know, a flash of white light and her heart stopping and then pounding. You think that's about the father? I'm not going to be so Freudian. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Give it a try. <laughs> Uh, there's something there, right? I mean, it, what is happening in that moment? Because she's so noncommittal about Frank Cairns. I'm, I think hearing about death at different stages of one's life, so if you hear about the death of an, dare I say, somebody of my generation, you're not surprised. Mm-hmm. It is to be expected, but 
deaths in war are just sudden snuffings out. So a shock, therefore. Yeah. It's a moment of, of incredible grief. She hears of his death, and then she immediately feels happy for him that he doesn't have to go he back to his to miserable old life. Man again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then she wants to write him a letter. Yeah. And then she forgets him. So she says. So she says. But right. we know that's not true because here he is in this story that she has written. Here she is writing a story. <laughs> yes, very true. Um, let's talk about the varieties of exile in this story. Okay, so she starts with the immigrants that she's absolutely obsessed with. Oh, and they the are refugees. of a certain tragic, doom-laden, wartime kind. You know, they've had to leave the countries that they were in because of all the uproar going on there. So she's fascinated with them. Her mother was a great reader of Russian novels, and as we learned from other stories. Uh, so she's probably picked up on that. She finds it all very romantic. So she has this menagerie of people that she's pretty much made up, and she loses interest in them as soon as they become ordinary. As soon as they start eating cornflakes and applying for citizenship, she finds that pretty dull. <laughs> Integrating. <laughs> yeah, she wants them to be <laughs> Melmoth the Wanderers, doomed to going from place to place. So that's one. The other one is Frank Cairns, of a type that she really doesn't approve of. So that's not romantic. It's sort of soggy and gray. and So she's studied every detail of this type. She certainly has. <laughs> well, as she says, she's taken every every curio out of the curio cabinet and, and she, she knows it, uh, but she doesn't find it appealing. She doesn't want to be like that. So there's that kind. And then there is she herself who doesn't really fit into any of the milieus in which we find her. So she's not at home in this summer place where she's rented a room and amongst the group of men that she's working amongst, she's also considered an oddity. She's not one with any of these people. She has a brief period of being patriotically Canadian, but we don't totally believe that either. <laughs> because she doesn't send the letter about the butter. She does not send the letter <laughs> about the butter because her grandmother appears to her in a dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she did like her grandmother. We learned from the other stories. And then in the last line, you have all this business of putting life through a sieve and then discarding it was another variety of exile. Yes, because you're refusing to identify with your own past. So it's family Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to be on a desert island somehow, somewhere. But it is, it is how she lived her life. She lived in Paris when she got there. She was never a Parisian. And... Um, People who read her in Canada didn't know she was Canadian until it was somehow revealed. I mean, you would read these stories in The New Yorker. And the first one I read of hers, I thought, this person has to be Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> but I hadn't known that. Yeah. I don't think she was really published here until people figured out that she was Canadian, though she had been keeping a low profile about it. As, as one did. <laughs> I was told in that time period, if you're serious about being a writer, you've got to get out of Canada. That's what they said in the 60s. 
Who said it? Other writers. Other writers? Yeah. Get out before it's too late. You I had didn't, to, and look at me. <laughs> People really did say that. You had to physically get out of Canada, or you just had to physically, publish elsewhere? You had to physically yeah, you get had to out. leave. Yeah. So, another variety of exile. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people believed. Mordecai Richler did that. Margaret yeah. Lawrence did that. My generation, instead of doing that, stayed and set up small publishing houses because the conundrum was economies of scale meant that you couldn't publish a novel in Canada unless you could also have a publication in the States or England, or hopefully both. It wasn't economical. There weren't enough readers Hmm. to make it worth the publisher's while. That has changed. Oh, yes, dear, it has changed. (laughs) (laughs) It started changing, I would say, in the later 60s. Mavis was close to 20 years older than you. Um, So she 22. Graham was born in 34, so she was... Um, 12 years older than him. I was born in 39, so 12 and 18 years older than me. And Alice Monroe, the other person... She was born in 31. Yeah, the other yeah. person we've spoken about on the podcast, and so she's nine years, eight or nine years older yeah. than you. Were those two kind of figureheads for you? Or were well, you actually not reading Canadians? I until, you know, after my... Quotes development and quotes already happened. Um, Alice, You're still um, developing. You think? <laughs> <laughs> That's very cute. Um, <laughs> uh, Alice, much more so. So I, I was reading her quite early. I read her first book, which was Dance in the Happy Shades. As soon as it came out, I thought it was great. Um, I knew her at that time as well. I met her just right after that. So she was much more in my life. I I didn't meet Mavis until we actually went to Paris and Mm -hmm. met her at that time and uh, visited her whenever we were there. Do you feel that Mavis had had an influence on how you wrote, even if you were already fully developed? <laughs> Hard to say, but I was certainly very interested in her. I I edited um Best Canadian short stories of could it have been nineteen eighty nine, possibly. There's a pre selection committee as you know, and they choose about a hundred and you read all of those. Right. So I asked them to black out all the names because I didn't want to know who I was reading. But I knew immediately this is an Alice story. This is a Mavis story. Nobody else could have written these stories. Yeah. Thank you so much, Margaret. Thank you, Deborah. Always a pleasure. Mavis Gallant, who died in 2014, was the author of two novels and more than a dozen story collections. In recent years, New York Review Books Classic Series has released several volumes of her work, including Paris Stories and The Cost of Living. Gallant was a winner of the Governor General's Award, as well as the Ray Award for the Short Story and the Penn Nabokov Award. She published 116 stories in The New Yorker between 1951 and 1995. 
Margaret Atwood is the author of numerous collections of poetry, stories, and novels, including The Handmaid's Tale, The Blind Assassin, which won the Booker Prize in 2000, Stone Mattress, The Testaments, and Old Babes in the Wood, which was published earlier this year. A winner of the Franz Kafka Prize and the Governor General's Award, among others, she was awarded the Hitchens Prize last year. You can download more than 190 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.